I invite you to open your Bible to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. I believe that's on page 62 of the church Bible, if you're using one of those. Um, And if you aren't using one of those, but you need one, uh, let me just tell you, there's one under the seat in front of you. Um, If you need that, I believe it's on page 62, Exodus 20, 8 through 11. We'll have those words on the screen as well. But we're continuing our series through the Ten Commandments. This morning, we're looking at the fourth commandment. And I mentioned last week... Uh, that probably the third commandment is the, is the most thoughtlessly neglected of the Ten Commandments. That is, we just don't give a whole lot of thought to it. We know it's there and, and something we ought to obey or whatever, but uh, maybe we're a little bit more careless about that. Um, and it's neglected as, as a result of that. Often we just don't fail, or often we fail rather, to speak about God or to God with the reverence that's due to him. Uh, So it's the the most thoughtlessly neglected. Well, I would suggest that surely the fourth commandment is the most thoughtfully neglected. And, and, And by that, again, I mean that many Christians have thought about it at least a little bit and decided this doesn't really apply. Or it doesn't apply to me, it doesn't apply to us as a, as, uh, as a church now, as Christians, or whatever the case may be. I, by the way, be, by, by, by saying thoughtfully, I don't mean necessarily that, that everybody's been thoroughly thoughtful about that. In fact, my uh, contention would be it's quite the opposite. Um, that it's not because it's a thoroughly studied conclusion, but they've just intentionally, consciously decided, uh, no, this one really doesn't apply so much. So the question today we bring um, to this message is, how is the Christian to obey the fourth commandment? Is that something you're interested in knowing? Uh, I hope so, because that's the only thing I plan to talk about. Uh, So actually, I shouldn't have even asked the question. Uh, Whether you're interested or not, that's what I've got for you. But Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, and let's stand together just out of reverent attention to the Word of God. Hear the Word of the Lord. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and made it holy. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, we we do thank you for your living and true word. And we need it to be life and truth to us always. And Lord, as always, you know every mind and heart in this room and you know all that could be said about this passage of scripture that can't possibly be said in this period of time. So, Lord, we pray that you would minister the truth of your word to individual hearts according to our need, your desire to meet those needs, your desire to instruct us, and and, and exclusively your ability to do so in a room this size. So, Lord, would you speak your word by your spirit through your servant and to your people for your glory. Move me out of the way as always, Lord, 
and just use my voice as an instrument to speak a message to your people for Christ's sake. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, this commandment is different in some respect, and our approach to understanding and applying it needs to be different. I mean, it seems, I think, even just to the average reader and onlooker that, that um, even just on the surface, there is something external about obedience to this commandment. Of course, as you read through the Old Testament, there are all sorts of ceremonial and regulatory attachments to the commandment. And so it's just different from the others, even just on that level. And how we think about the fourth commandment is actually related to how we think about the Bible as a whole. Again, whether we're conscious or not of this, um, how we understand or fail to understand that the Old Testament relates to the new. What is the overarching story, the overarching message um, of God's uh, relationship to his people in the work of redemption? The way we understand all of that actually is going to uh, color the way we understand and regard the fourth commandment. And so, like so many other subjects in the Bible, this one is worthy of a more in-depth study than we can possibly give it in one sermon. Um, and uh, can't even come close to it. And so I'm, I'm going to have to fast forward through a lot of the background discussion um, that could be had about this. But just to give you an idea of how widely views vary on the subject, um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you some of the sort of the, the boundaries, the ends of the continuum. Before I say that, though, I just say, you know, a few people, again, uh, disagree a whole lot about um, thou shalt not murder, for example. Like we know what that means. <laughs> uh, we all agree that it's wrong. We all agree that still applies to us. There's not a whole lot of disagreement about um, that one. And, and that's true, again, maybe to lesser degree, but, but by and large of the others. There's wide, uh, a wide variance in views on this subject. So, for example, some say that the commandment is no longer b binding on Christians at all. Okay, that's one view among Christians, that the fourth commandment is not binding at all on Christians, um, that there are really only nine commandments that, that remain. That's one uh, view. At the other end of the continuum, there are those who say it's entirely binding, even to the point that we need to continue to observe it on Saturday. Now, if you can imagine, I can't possibly speak to both ends of that and everything in between in one sermon. Well, I could, but you wouldn't stay around for it because we'd be going on a while. I'd lose you. But it's, it's impossible to cover that from end to end. So this morning's message, I'm really directing primarily to those who really haven't thought very thoroughly about the issue and yet have excused themselves from any real obligation here. Okay, let me say that again. I'm, I'm, my message is primarily directed toward those who maybe haven't studied it very thoroughly, um, but would excuse themselves from, from any obligation to obey the commandment here. Um, they commit what, uh, what could be called the uh, chocolate research study fallacy. That's the, only, that's the name that I've given to it. Here's what I mean by that. It's when you, when you, ex, you accept a conclusion 
because you like it. Okay, so like the, 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 the chocolate research study is the one that says, hey, did you read that research? Did you hear about that new research study? It says chocolate is good for you. And then somebody says, well, yeah, you, you're putting a whole lot of chocolate in your shopping cart there. You know, what about the research study on diabetes? You know, and, and uh, some of the other things. Well, we're, we're not talking about those research studies. We're talking about this one. Chocolate is good for you. I'll back off. That is accepting a conclusion because you like it, not because you've actually evaluated whether or not it's true. And there are people who treat many things in the Bible that way, um, certainly this particular commandment. So having said that, here's the line of thought I'm gonna to try to follow today. Uh, first, that there is still a Sabbath principle that is binding on the church. There is still a Sabbath principle out of the fourth commandment that's binding on the church. There are 10 commandments, not nine. The fourth commandment is in between the third and the fifth. Nobody has taken it out. So we need to look for deeper abiding principles in the commandment to discern how we're to obey it. Okay? So I want us to, to try to do that this morning, to look for the, the deeper abiding principles in the fourth commandment by asking three questions of the commandment, or three questions about the commandment, and then considering three ways we can obey it. Okay, that's how this is gonna be framed today. Three questions we're gonna ask of the commandment, and then three ways that we can obey it. Um, the three questions we'll ask, really we could ask these and one other of, of all the commandments. I think these are helpful, and I touched on this when, uh, in the first message on the Ten Commandments. But it is, what does this commandment tell us about the nature and character of God? Okay, that's one of the things we want to look for. What does it tell us about the nature and character of God? Number two, how is a commandment good for us? Because, because he says in the book of Deuteronomy, it is. When, when, he, when he gives us the Ten Commandments for the second time before they go into enter the promised land, he says, when you go and occupy the land, be sure to obey these laws that it may go well with you. It is for your good always. Now, he said that. So we need to look for in the commandment, what's, what about it is good for us? The third question is, um, how does this commandment point to Jesus? because the law is supposed to have that purpose, a tutor to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And so let's first unpack uh, those three questions. I'll try to do it in fairly succinctly here, but what does this tell us about the nature and character of God, this commandment? I would say the, the, the brief answer to that is, it tells us that he is sufficient and trustworthy. He is sufficient and trustworthy. I get there by way of, number one, the fact that the commandment reminds us that he's creator. If you noticed here in verse 11, it refers back to that. In six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh. Genesis chapter 2 tells us that, 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 uh, that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance. He did his work of creation and rested and modeled uh, for us the pattern of work and rest. So it tells us he's the creator. The, the, the account of this uh, in Deuteronomy chapter five, verse 15, 
actually gives a different reason here where this harkens back to his uh, work as creator. Deuteronomy points back to his work as redeemer. It says, you, you know, you shall, it shall be a day of rest for your servants because remember that you too were slaves when you were in Egypt and God brought you out of there. So it, it, it's a reminder of his work that he is creator and that he is redeemer. And third, that he's provider. Um, this is actually the only commandment that had been teed up before Exodus 20 in Exodus 16. Um, this is revealed that on, on the Sabbath, they are not to gather the manna that he's going to provide for them. You may remember the account of that. He's going to do it in six days. On day number six, gather two days worth. There's not going to be any out there on the seventh day. So he's their provider. And in a sense, as creator and redeemer, that implies he's provider anyway. Uh, but it is explicitly, overtly so um, there as he provides for them by way of manna. And so it's perhaps for those reasons he begins this commandment by saying verse, in verse 8, the very first word of it is, remember the Sabbath. In other words, he didn't just pull out of thin air this new commandment right here in Exodus chapter 20. He's pointing back to something that has been true of God and that has actually been imparted to them as God's people. He's sufficient and trustworthy. And, and so that's going to point to our worship of him as one who's sufficient and trustworthy. Now, the second question, how is this commandment good for us? Um, well, two things I'll say. It provides a rhythm of work and rest. It provides a rhythm in life of work and rest for us. We work and then we rest, and we work, and then we rest, and then we work, and then we rest. Of course, we know our own personal testimony is sometimes we work, and then we work, and then we work, and then we work. And then we collapse, right? In some cases, literally, I mean, that's true. Like, we, we just, we, we, we just fall, you know, kind of collapse at the knees or whatever. But it provides a rhythm of work and rest. And secondly, it does cultivate trust and contentment. It's good for us in that it provides a rhythm of work and rest. It's good that it provides, it, it cultivates trust and contentment in this way. Because do, you, you know, you can always produce more in seven days than you could in six. Is that true? I mean, like you could do a seventh day worth of, worth of work and you could... You could get more work done. In many cases, you can earn more money or whatever the case may be. But you, you trust God. If you, if you uh, obey this commandment, if you make this a part of your life, you trust him to provide seven days worth in six days. That's part of what's established in the life of God's people from the very beginning. And, and, and it cultivates contentment in the sense that well, if you don't get seven days with worth, you're just content with six. You understand what I mean? Like, in other words, that, that, that what you adjust your expectations and your desires to say, this actually is 
seven days worth that I'm content with what he's provided because there is always there is always the opportunity to grasp for more do you understand that about yourself not only the opportunity but as a desire to you can always you you know no matter no matter how much you have you can always want more and you can always find some route of pursuing it of course you'll find that not to be enough either which is why we need to have contentment cultivated in our heart and the sabbath principle actually helps cultivate that so uh that's what it tells us about God, how it's good for us. Number three, how does, how does the commandment point us to Jesus? Uh, well, um, you know, Jesus said he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Do you remember that? Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Galatians 3 tells us that, that the law is supposed to point us to Christ. That all of what was happening in the old covenant points to a new and better covenant uh, and that needs to be sort of part of a fundamental understanding here some laws were fulfilled by coming to completion when he arrived and they they were no longer valid you think of food laws purity laws many ceremonial and sacrificial laws and that kind of thing they were brought to completion at his coming and so this isn't a perfect analogy but think about um, you know a, law, a tax cut law that has an expiration date written into it when that date arrives, the tax cuts are no longer valid. The rates go back to their original uh, level. In other words, nobody has to repeal the law. Now, somehow, you know, Congress has worked that out where it's not really that easy, is it? Like, it's always, it's always more complicated than that. But the point is, nobody has to repeal the law. The expiration is actually already part of the law. That when the time arrives the law is no longer valid it has served its purpose it's brought to completion again there's a, a loose sense in which there are some laws that function that way that when jesus came through his life and death and resurrection uh, some of those laws that have been pointing to him were no longer valid and necessary because he embodied all of that but some laws uh or fulfilled in the sense that Jesus revealed a deeper meaning to them. Again, we looked at this one time before in the Beatitudes. He says, you've, you've heard it said you should not commit murder. I tell you, if you uh, are angry with your brother unjustly or without cause or whatever, you've already committed murder in your heart. You've heard it said you should not commit adultery. I say to you, if you look at a woman in lust, you've already committed um, adultery in your heart. There's a deeper uh, meaning there to it. In, in one respect, uh, Jesus, his death and resurrection reveal a deeper meaning to the Sabbath. And it's found in uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. You can write that reference down um, if, you, if you wish. But it just says, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, as God did from his. Anyone who, who enters uh, God's rest also rests from their works. And that was actually part of my prayer uh, just a little bit ago. That people, in other words, that when we, that people who labor in their works of righteousness trying to earn God's favor, 
Um, when they enter the rest that God has provided in Christ, they actually rest from their works, plural. Okay? You tracking with me on that? Um, now, once again, that's another whole subject. There could be a lot more said about that, but there's a sense in which uh, the Sabbath always pointed toward uh, the work that Jesus would do in, in leading us into providing entry into um, an eternal rest. And so uh, all of that would tell us, given what it tells us about God, what it tells us about what's good for us and how it points us to Jesus, there, there's a Sabbath principle there um, still to obey for us. And so how do we do that? How do we obey the fourth commandment? I would suggest three ways. There may be uh, more to it than this, but number one would be by gathering weekly as the people of God for public worship. One of the ways we um, obey the Sabbath is by, by gathering weekly as the people of God for public worship. Um, by the way, if you've been in church for some period of time, I'm saying very little here that's new uh, to you. Although, Again, you might be among those who really never bought into the idea, but it's not, it's not necessarily news to you. But the commandment says, if you notice in verse 10, that the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. Now, again, there's all kinds of understandings here, and I can't, I can't uh, speak to all of those or answer all the questions or objections people would have here about what, what you call it and how you understand the Sabbath, but it is, it is a Sabbath day to the Lord. It is his, not yours and mine. Although Jesus said the Sabbath uh, is made for man, right? And not man for the Sabbath. There is something in it that's supposed to be good for us. But it's also a day to the Lord and, and, and there ought to be worship of the people of God on it. In the Old Testament, it does say um, that the Sabbath provided an occasion for a holy convocation. Uh, not that that was every week that they did that, but, there, but, but they could have holy convocations on uh, Sabbaths because it was a day of rest. Now, that's not the reason that we do it, but it does provide that occasion. But because God is sufficient and trustworthy, we set apart the time to worship him as such. But maybe more obvious than that, there is simply the fact that if the church is going to worship together, there has to be a day we can agree on, so to speak. I mean, would you agree that no matter what your view of, of the fourth commandment is, that if we're going to have a day we worship together, we got to pick a day. I mean, you've probably tried to schedule a meeting before with like six people. And you, you probably can't find a night this week where everybody could meet on one good, hey, we're trying to get together a meeting. I uh, just want to see what night's good for you. Well, that was not good for me. That was good for me, but the other one's not good for me, right? There, there has to be a time when the people of God can worship together. And from the earliest years of the church, it has been on the first day of the week or Sunday. Now, this is another huge question surrounding this whole subject and one, again, which I can't really treat of why Sunday and not Saturday? Uh, it infuriates the Seventh-day Adventists. When you get into the subject, they can track right with you for a little while, and then you jump to Sunday, and they're just irate. It's the you know the one thing that they're like their mission 
is to be sure everybody knows you're supposed to worship on Saturday, not Sunday. With the, the church from the very earliest uh, years of the church has worshiped on the first day of the week. We see Christian assemblies in the New Testament. Acts chapter 20, 1 Corinthians 16 would be among them. Clearly the first day of the week is special in that it's the resurrection of Jesus. It's the Pentecost happens on the first day of the week, etc. But it becomes an occasion for assembly of the church from the very earliest days. The earliest records of Christian worship in the second century say that the church worshiped together on Sunday. Um, and, and I would say some, some suggest the church, church didn't worship on Sunday until um, after Constantine, you know, that sort of he decreed that that was so. That's just not the case. Uh, there were things he did that changed the way the church worshiped. The church, the church had worshiped together on Sunday from the very earliest records we have of Christian worship. Now, again, the bigger issue is, is there going to be a day where we, where we commit to, where you feel called to, not, I shouldn't even say feel, where you believe that you are called to worship with the church? Because some, some will say, well, I can worship God just as well on the golf course as I can in the church, or I can, you know, I can worship God um, just as well out on the beach or out on the boat as I can in church. Well, first of all, the fact is you don't worship him just as well on the golf course or on the beach. I mean, whether theoretically you can, the fact is you don't. Right? I mean, you're, 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 you're there for your own pleasure, not his. And, and maybe since you may be convinced that that's okay, well, well enough. Again, there's a, really a lot of different views here. Maybe you're convinced that that's enough, but don't drag God into it. You know, we, 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 we come across a little bit like the pageant princess on the float in the parade who's riding by and waving to the crowds or whatever and throwing candy you know, out to the onlookers and that sort of thing. I mean, we, we put ourselves up on the throne on the Lord's day. We make, we, whatever our decisions or whatever our activities are, are about our pleasure, not his. But then we say, oh, oh, there's God. Let me throw him a little, little butterscotch. You know, just throw him a little bit of praise. Oh, thank you, God, for this beautiful day you've given me out here on the beach. Now, again, he is creator. There is something, uh, there's something that ought to invoke praise anytime we're in the creation. That, that, that is not inherently wrong. But the point is, don't, make, don't try to make it about him. It's not about him, it's about you. And if you don't feel good about that, then deal with that issue first. But, but he is no more honored by that kind of token uh, butterscotch candy praise, pageant princess praise, um, than he is by the, the, those in the Old Testament who kept the Sabbath externally, but whose hearts were far from him. And he said, he, you know, he despised their sacrifices and, and that kind of external worship in, in a similar way. So they're, they're, they're legalistic um, adherence to it was uh, was no more valued to him as praise than our little token butterscotch candy. I don't know why I say butterscotch, but hopefully you're following the analogy. I must have 
had that experience somewhere along the way. But hopefully you're, you're, you're following the line of thought. So we don't worship that way. But again, the, 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 set, the, the real issue is the gathered corporate worship of the church, not your own worship individually. The, the whole point of the thing is the people of God have to have a time appointed to assemble. It's not about you. I mean, you, you got go ahead and worship privately all the other six days. That's actually something we ought to do. It's not about you. It's about the corporate worship of the people of God. That's at hand. When is that going to happen? I mean, there are things uh, that commands that are given to the church in the New Testament that can only be carried out when we are together. He says, don't, uh, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together in Hebrews. In 1 Timothy, Timothy, Paul says, devote yourselves until I come. Devote yourselves to the public reading of the scriptures. Presumably that there's going to be people there to hear you reading it. It wouldn't be public otherwise. Sing to one another, Ephesians tells us. In psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, sing to one another. There's got to be one another's around. There has to be an occasion for corporate worship of the church. So we gather weekly for worship. And that's one of the reasons or one of the ways that we can obey the Sabbath today. Number two is by resting from our work and from the stresses of our work. There's a little question that most of us could use the rest. Um, I, I, I had this written in my notes and actually had a little exchange with somebody to, uh, this morning about it. In fact, it's not uncommon at all to ask people, you know, how are you doing? And the answer is busy or tired. Or in some cases, busy and tired. I mean, again, that just saying that... Uh, we need rhythms of rest in our life. We need occasions to rest from our work. And we get tired and irritable and stressed and unhealthy. Now, and I don't intend to, to make this about sort of a self, self-help message or whatever, to, that, hey, you need to get more rest. But it is true. And the point is that God has designed those rhythms into creation for us to have patterns of work and rest, rhythms of work and rest. We ignore it to our apparel. But th- then as soon as you say this, though, as soon as, you, as soon as you talk about resting from our work and from the stresses of our work, uh, somebody will, will, will ask, well, what is it? What can I do and what can I not do? Right? They want the list of regulations. What's on the do list? What's on the don't list on on the Lord's Day? Well, uh, you're going to end up in the wrong direction from the outset, I think, if that's where you start with this. It reminds me of uh, a time some years ago when I was a school administrator back here, and we did a fire alarm as we routinely do at fire drill, you know, and um, so I'm walking around making uh, the rounds as school administrators do, just checking things out, be sure you're evacuating okay. I walk around the corner and this one first grader comes running, scrambling out of the, the bathroom, and it was like somebody had thrown tear gas in there. I mean, he, you know, he's just disoriented or whatever and he comes out and he sees me standing in the hall 
and his eyes get big as saucers and he says, do I need to wash my hands? Which is, which is a sweet, I mean, a sweet picture and a sweet memory. But see, you know, uh, of course, washing, washing your hands is, is good for you, right? And it's for your protection. Uh, but even more for your protection is evacuating a burning building, right? Of course, that wasn't, it wasn't burning, but, but the point is, if we, if we come, if we, if, we, if we come at this point in a, sort of the message about the Lord's day, about the Sabbath, to say, um, can I mow my grass? Is it okay if I watch the football game? Is it okay if I, uh, all these other things, you know? Um, if you start there, you're, you're, you're probably gonna end up in the wrong place, is really what I'm saying. And, and I'll, I'll fast forward to saying, really many of those things just have to be left to a matter of conscience. I, I actually refuse to make uh, lists of regulations and rules for the very reasons I'm talking about. You, you can just end up exchanging one millstone around your neck for another um, if, you, if you live life that way. Uh, and yet, there is something here for us uh, to um, kind of uh, adjust ourselves to, adapt ourselves to. Here, here are maybe the better questions to make those kinds of decisions for yourself. And number one, number one, your convictions have to be brought to a place where you believe this is actually binding on you. But, but the questions would be, is the day ordered so that God can be first and your meditations of the day can remain focused on him? Okay, is your, is your day ordered in such a way where God can be first and that your meditations can be focused on him? The second, the second would be what is, what is restful to you? Because again, nobody's, no, there's not going to be any auditor coming to, to find out if you're obeying this in the right way. But what's, what's, what's work for one person really can be rest for another, given, depending on what the nature of your work is. I mean, if you're a landscaper, for example, mowing your grass probably is not restful. As an illustration, you see what I mean? Uh, but it might be uh, for somebody else. But the third way we can obey the commandment is by resting from our good works and, and trusting in Christ for salvation. It's part of what, uh, part of what it pointed to then and it's, it's part of what, we're, what it points us to even now, that there is an eternal rest to be discovered for those who are in Jesus, those who are in Christ through faith, there's an eternal rest we are to find in him. We get a taste of that now. In fact, the Lord's Day gives us a taste of that in our public worship together, in our private worship at home, in our rest and our meditation on him. But the heart of the gospel really is about his provision for giving us rest from our good works. Um, it's by grace, Ephesians 2 says, uh, verses 8 and 9, it's by grace that you're saved through faith. That not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. 
that's not of yourselves, not of works. That in Jesus we find rest from our works. That is at the heart of the gospel. And so in, a, in one respect, we, we can live in a state of rest every day. In fact, we probably need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day to remind ourselves that he's made provision for us to find rest every day. But our weekly rhythm of rest reminds us of that. It brings us around every week, one out of seven days, to remind us of his provision, of his grace, and that our worship and meditations can be focused on that saving grace. Well, again, that's a, I, I've given you a brain full. I can see some of your brains overflowing even uh, right now. And there's a whole lot more that could be said. But again, knowing the diversity of viewpoints, even in the contemporary church uh, and throughout church history, it's just good advice for us on this uh, particular matter, not to pass judgment or to worry about judgment being passed on us in that matter. Um, on one hand, it does have to be a matter of conscience based on biblical convictions. May I say, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, study your Bible about this issue. Don't commit the chocolate research study fallacy on this one. Because you'll find doing all you, another day to do all you want is a whole lot more desirable to your flesh than having a day where you set aside all you want or all you could do otherwise. Form biblical convictions on the matter. Let your conscience uh, and those convictions guide and then resolve to live them out, uh, making plans and preparations to do so because surely um, if you become convicted of that, you will have to then order your life in order to make that rest possible and routine um, in your life week to week. Well, let's pray together. Father, thank you for, um, again, the life and truth that's in your word. Thank you for the gift of rest. For even the example you set that, that from the very beginning in creation, you who didn't need rest ceased from your work and made that a model for us who do need rest. We need it physically and we need it spiritually. And Lord, again, we pray um, that this would be somehow especially rich and, and valuable today to those who know they are weary and need rest. And it may be on a spiritual level, but it may also be that physical rest um, would contribute to that. So Lord, what, what all the needs are, God, would you just minister this truth? Bring us closer to you. Show us a, a greater brightness of your glory, a fuller understanding of your greatness and majesty and lead us to a place of glad worship out of that heart. In Jesus' name, amen.